Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Tom DeLong. Tom is a renowned expert in organizational behavior, leadership, and human development of high-performance professionals the so-called soft skills often dismissed in the asset management business. After starting an academic career under the wing of Stephen Covey, Tom found himself recruited by John Mack to work alongside him to develop a positive culture at Morgan Stanley. After eight years in the trenches, he returned to academia as a professor at Harvard Business School, where he's remained for the past 20 years. Unlike most of us, 
Tom's resume and achievements are unusually difficult to locate online or anywhere. It was a sign of things to come in our fascinating conversation, which is simultaneously a masterclass in authentic leadership and a live case study in self-exploration with Tom as his own protagonist. Tom's exactly the type of person he has studied, and he strives to be the type of leader he promotes. I really encourage you to listen to this show. It's quite different from my other conversations in that Tom speaks about communication and connection, two subjects that are stereotypically dismissed in the asset management industry. Yet every one of my guests on the show and everyone I know who manages a team of people struggles with these very human issues. If you're willing to be open and self-aware, this podcast episode is really special. We discussed the meaning of work, the importance of feedback, the ways high-performing professionals derail themselves, the difference between your image and your essence, the omnipresence of insecurity in high achievers, and some techniques to foster deeper conversation in relationships. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, this week, if you happen to be in a married or committed relationship, and one night you turn to your partner and say, hey babe, what do you think? And they turn back and say, sorry hon, not tonight, I have a headache. Why not turn a lemon into lemonade by responding, I have a better idea, let's listen to the Capital Allocators podcast together. You can snuggle up and share a night of stimulating intellectual bonding. Thanks so much for spreading the word to your partner. One last thing before we get going. If you hop on my website, capitalallocatorspodcast.com, you'll find a form on the homepage to join my mailing list. Now, I can't say I know what I'll send out until I find time to start writing again, but I'd love to have your contact information as part of this great community of engaged investors we're building. Thanks so much. Without further ado, my conversation with Tom DeLong. Tom? Hi. <laughs> I guess it's good to see you again. I suppose. I suppose. Uh, thanks for doing this. Um, we have known each other a long time. And in all of that time, in all of the years of making fun of each other, which I imagine will come up from time to time during this conversation, I have not had the opportunity to talk to you about your work. And I am really, really excited to do that. You have been here at Harvard Business School for a long time. I know you were at Morgan Stanley for a while before that. You were teaching before that and have done incredible work in the areas of individual and organizational change. And I would love to know how in the world you got to this beautiful office in this esteemed institution, you of all people in this esteemed institution. Well, it's interesting that you, you tee it up that way because at each stop, at each chapter along the way, I've had this feeling of, do I really belong here? I've, I've been treated as I, that I belong. But I asked myself, in fact, I asked myself yesterday, I said, you made all these irrational decisions through your life, and now you're in the twilight of your career, as it were, and how did you end up here? And then here's Ted uh, wanting to uh, record it. But I want to go back to a word or a phrase you said, and that is, is you're interested in my work. And I think I've been fascinated for as long as I can remember about how each person defines for him or herself what their work is. 
capital W, small w, how do they identify themselves with their work? Is it work, is it day-to-day stuff that you fill up your life with? Or is it a kind of a higher purpose kind of work? And now, again, at 66, I've realized that my work has really been about helping people in organizations and individually live more meaningful lives on a lot of different dimensions. And it's interesting also that I I find myself a bit defensive in saying that because it feels so soft in the world of finance. It feels so... It's interesting because when I was at Morgan Stanley and I would have what I would call something other than deeply shallow conversations, we would have substantive conversations with folks. And then when they'd get back in the group, it was back to golf and it was back to redecorating the kitchen. And I think, by the way, that's one of the reasons that I longed to come back into an academic setting is the nature of the conversations and that I felt like folks were more willing, students and faculty, to have the kind of conversations that I thought would nurture them and were certainly uh, nurturing for me. So did you, from an early age, have this deep interest in people? I was the fourth of six children. And while at the time I thought I had an ideal family, and I'm finding myself self-editing right now about how far to go into this, but (laughs) I will just say that I felt like it was my responsibility to figure out all the family members and make everything great. And so I was an observer of systems and of relationships, and I wouldn't have used the word when I was eight or nine about symmetry in relationships or power dynamics. But I think that I kind of made it my goal that if I could somehow help small systems, whether it was a dyad or other people or larger organizations, simply to make their lives, and not just meaningful, but but make it so that they're getting traction in ways that are self-satisfying for them. And how did you take that as a path? I have in my head now, we have Tom DeLong, we have Tony Robbins, we have my father, the psychiatrist. There are so many different ways you could take that interest. How did you take the interest into an academic study and then go from there? I think after my bachelor's degree in English, I continued to feel like, well, I don't know enough to, to leave here. And, and I love academic institutions. And I remember as a kid being on my bicycle in Portland, Oregon, and riding around looking at the different schools. And I was just enamored with it. And so I felt comfortable being in a university. And then I actually had a professor, a professor named Stephen Covey, that has passed on now. We had a conversation. He says, you need to go into organizational behavior. And I took the law exam entrance exam and uh, it didn't do well and it broke my heart and felt like a total failure at 23 so I decided to go into this because I was impressed with how he could in some ways capture an audience and so then I went into organizational behavior became his teaching assistant for two years and then uh, said well I know some of this some of the theory around how organizations work I'm going to go in for more more study So I went to a combined PhD program at Purdue 
where I could study organizational behavior and also family systems and see the interaction intersection with that. So I remember getting in my uh, Camille and I had, oh we had been married five years and we had a '65 Chevy convertible and we headed from Utah to West Lafayette, Indiana, and then from there a postdoc at MIT and. And then back to the academic route. And at, at some point in time, you got the call. I don't remember if it was from John Mack or within Morgan Stanley. Where were you at the time? I was on an airplane. I was heading to uh, Johnson Johnson headquarters. So I was flying from Salt Lake City to JFK. And I was going to talk about my research on individual organizational change. And Ralph Larson, who was the chairman then, had pulled together all of the board's of companies owned by J&J, and there were 70 different organizations, and they all had different boards, some highly functioning, some totally dysfunctional. I was going to go back in this big room and talk to them about my research. So I'm practicing the speech I'm going to give, and the guy sitting next to me says, could you speak up? This was in 1990, So you, you were mumbling to yourself mumbling on to the myself. plane, I loud enough that the guy, yep, that I makes a lot of sense. I was practicing, <laughs> and I'm sure he thought that, that there was a problem with me. And and he doesn't introduce he doesn't introduce himself he just says speak up well, could you speak up this is interesting so I spoke up and then he turns to me and introduces himself and and I says well what do you do for a living and he says well I'm the president of Morgan Stanley and I said this is how much I knew about investment banking I said to him well what's the difference between J P Morgan and Morgan Stanley and Morgan Guarantee and so here was the president of Morgan Stanley giving me a history lesson about. Harold Stanley and these partners breaking away. And then when we land, we talked the whole time. He says, I'm going to call you. And I said, that would be great. And that was it. And what happened is we were just, we were kind of, um, we were smitten with each other in the sense of I, something happened inside of me when I was with John. There was, there was some way that I experienced myself around feeling like I could do anything. And by the way, I experienced this in the three, uh, three hours that we talked. And, and he experienced something like that, I think, with me. And here he was taking over as president, and he, he says, I've been talking competition. He was then running fixed income and had his own inferior complex about being in fixed income as opposed to equities and investment banking. And he says, I've been so mean-spirited. Now I've got to get all these divisions to work together. And so I was talking about some of the things he might do. And then two weeks later, he calls me when I'm back in Utah. And he said, I need you to fly out here. I want to talk more about this whole notion of, of how do you get really, really bright, technically competent individuals to be able to manage, to be able to interact to be able to have honest conversations. And he said, someday you're going to work for me and you're going to help me transform this place to make it a place where people don't want to come just because of the money or because of the, the status. And by then, at that time, it was Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and the others were far behind. But he says, there's something more that we need to create and sometime you're going to do that. And I, I took a year off and commuted and then we moved. We sold a nine-acre farm. And again, it's one of these irrational decisions. You might say, Ted, well, because you know this world, you know the Harvard Business School world and the investment banking world. But here I was as this, this professor 
in a school of education, which feels a little bit second rate, going to this top tier company, firm, and again, being responsible for people, being responsible for the culture. I mean, how, how does that work? And so, once again, I make this high-risk decision, move my family back. And I remember there was one moment at Scarsdale High School. Camille was still back in Utah, and I had the three kids and was moving them. And I dropped off my two girls at Scarsdale High School. One was going to be a junior and one was going to be a freshman. And they left their books in the car, and I went back. And here was Sarah, junior, Catherine, the freshman. And they were walking around the track, and school had already started. And they were both sobbing. And they said, Dad, we know we told you that, that we'd support you in moving. But they said, we don't want to go into the school. And it was like my third day of work. And I remember walking around the track with them and then walking into school with them. I asked myself, am I over my head, both to be the kind of father I want to be partner? That's another story. So... How do you do it? You you show up at Morgan Stanley, and John Max brought you in, so people probably take you a little bit seriously. But you know, people have this technical expertise; they have their heads down, they're trying to make money, and the stuff you're talking about, as you said, you know, these tough Wall Street guys are going to call that soft stuff. What, what did you? What were you know? Were there one or two incidents that you remember that either broke that open or allowed you to have an impact? This is what I've come to believe, and here I am teaching this the so-called advanced course on leadership here at the business school, and get a chance to go all over to different companies, et cetera, et cetera. But what I've realized is that leadership, in my mind, is something that's deeply personal, and I don't think I knew it then, but what would happen is I'd have a conversation with somebody, and while I think that their internal dialogue could have been about criticism, I found them kind of leaning on the edge of their seats. And I actually think that, that folks were having the same kind of experience with me that I had with John. And I realized, and John told me, he says, Tom, I don't want you to learn the business. I could care less. And he, I'm going to put words in his mouth. But basically, he said, I want our managers to be the kind of managers where other people experience themselves differently when they're with them. And that has been, in my mind, the mantra, is what happens inside another person. And so I started having conversations with folks. I couldn't believe the way people were compensated. I couldn't believe the way people were promoted. It was an old, literally an old boy system. And I went right after that and helped create the first performance evaluation in the history of Wall Street. And again, that's another story in and of itself. So what's that story? Well, the first thing about organizational change in my mind is, is that you, you need to kind of start small. And so I went right with the investment bankers. And I said, are you pleased with the way your comps fixed? Are you pleased with who gets promoted? And they go, no, we have no data about it. It's all bullshit. And I says, well, let's create something. What we realize is that nobody was talking about their careers. There is no mentoring going on. And so we wanted to create some kind of structure for people to talk with one another. And we says, why not a performance evaluation? And we'll have them help design it. And then I got up. I think this was one of the things that happened. I got up in a partner's meeting, no notes, 
and there might have been 500 partners. It was our, our, our annual meeting, and I challenged them, and I said, well, I'm not the new sheriff in town. John is. But what I do know is that your subordinates want conversations about not only their comp, but about themselves and about their careers. And they want to know that somebody cares deeply about their work. And I said, I know that that may fall on deaf ears. But I said, our expectation is is that you have a 30-minute conversation a year with every one of your professionals. And you could have heard a pin drop like you have got to be kidding. I've got to talk to Ted. I got to talk to Steve Galbraith. I got to talk to Andre for 30 minutes. You got to be kidding. <laughs> now we're talking 1991, uh, 1992. And so that was the start. But what we did is that we got actors to come in and role play how to have a conversation. What did the actors say? Because anyone can learn from well, how what, to have what a conversation, we did. What right? we did is they had an actor, and then I, I brought in some managing directors that I knew that would be irascible and thought it was nonsense. And I said, I want a managing director, give the, art, the actor some crap, and the actor's going to give you feedback about, about your career. And then I, we were videoing this thing. They were mean-spirited. They were arrogant. They were self-serving. They were selfish and, and good people, I guess. <laughs> and then I showed these clips of them getting feedback from these actors, and the place went nuts. And I think what the the partners could see is, is that I had a sense of humor, that I had a sense of understanding how, how uh, systems work. And so as you started to implement, call it a feedback loop, You'll learn a lot of things from that process. And one of, one of the things that I found most fascinating that you, you wrote about in, in your book that's now, I guess, six or seven years old, Flying Without a Net, is the ways that individuals derail themselves in their career. And in particular, these, these high-performing or, or high-need-for-achievement professionals. There's a number of things that we do. One is, is that we become what I call activated almost immediately if there's a differing point of view and it's very hard to make decisions when we are activated, meaning your amygdala has gone crazy. You, are, you want to get back at the other person. I started to talk, and I have for years, about this whole process of affective labeling, meaning talking to yourself about what's going on inside of yourself to try to settle yourself down so you don't screw yourself over by creating pain for other people and also yourself. So that would be an example. Another distortion is is that if I have a difficult message for somebody that I'm working with I don't want to have it and so I delay it and what happens is the body literally dissipates that tension for 90 minutes to two hours but then what happens is then it comes back it comes back stronger and it comes back it's more acutely it's more acute and so this conversation even a small conversation I'm going to have with Ted I keep putting it off, and now now it's a major event inside my head. And so what happens is the managers are walking around with these conversations that they're not having. The, the technical term or the, the psychological term is called experiential avoidance. And so what we're finding is that people are living their lives based on the conversations they're not having as opposed to the ones that they're having. And that what, what that automatically does, it starts to put you back on your heels as opposed to being on the balls of your feet. 
and you start to feel more like a victim and you start to react because it just you just start to feel overwhelmed and does that circle back into the kind of the stories that we tell ourselves? It's like this negative feedback loop. There's stories that we tell other people about ourselves, you know, our resumes. And there's stories that other people tell about us, like a eulogy or your performance evaluation. And then there's the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And what happens is that we typically see them as either or stories, either I'm uh, really competent, they're self-affirming stories, or they are what we call self-doubting stories, self-doubting narratives. Now, what we've observed is that for high need for achievement personalities, they spend far more time focused on their self-doubting narratives. And we actually ask the students, and I, I model it because I want them to to know what it feels like and how I actually get nervous doing it. So I will, I'll be in front of 80 students. And I will tell them my self-affirming story, the story that, that your mother would tell her friends about you. And I, I lay it on, youngest tenured professor, da-da-da-da. I can go, and I go on and on and on and on. And then we have, then I have or I tell the students my self-doubting story. You know, failed law school, entrance exam, and I go right down the line, and at the very last thing I say in my self-doubting story is, and here I am at Harvard Business School, and I still feel like a failure because my goal was to be a university president, and I'm not going to make it. So the students write theirs, and then... And then they share them with one another, and they realize how stuck they are. And what I push the students to do is, and I do this also with executives, but I, I say, who are the kind of people that make it so your self-doubting stories emerge? What are, the, what are the settings? When is it that you start to feel less of who you are? And then we talk about ways to to deal with that. You've written about how this, again, high need for achievement, which is a fascinating term, a high need for achievement individual, can fall into these traps where they don't have the courage to make changes because they don't want to look bad and all the implications of, of looking bad. So how does someone in that situation get themselves into that position and then what do they do to work, them, work their way out? On the first day that MBAs show up here, the cohort will be around 900 students. And the dean has asked me on a number of occasions to get up and give some words of wisdom. And one, of the, one year, I held up a resume, and I told our students. I said, students, you've worked 27 years to build a perfect image. And now you have two years to figure out who you really are. So I, want you, I say, I just want you all to know that you aren't your resume. And then I talked to them. I said, so we want you to move from image managing to essence managing. And that's going to be very tough because you're addicted to the image part and you're going to be going, you've already started evaluating everybody and sizing people up. But I said, what I tell people is the, the sooner they can get to a point of saying, I don't have all the answers, then I'm encouraged. And I don't care how old you are. And what we also say is, is that 
because high achieving people, professionals deal in either or situations, we talk to them about there's some small things you can do that'll have a profound effect. One might be is that just notice in your meetings how much time you spend talking and how much everyone else is. And so another thing I would tell folks is, is that they need to put people around them that will tell them when they're full of it. <clears throat> and the more you can get, the better. And I would not just put rely on your significant other if you're in a committed relationship. I think you're setting yourself up. But I think that's another thing you can do. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. There's a lot to that concept of you can't do it alone, that you need people around you that will be the mirror, both good and bad, that will get you out of your negative story that you're telling yourself, but that also will say, hey, you're full shit. This is what I'm seeing. How do you figure out among your friends, some of whom are more image-conscious friends, some of them might be more essence-conscious friends, which, which ones are the ones that you should foster a deeper relationship with? One, which ones do you trust? Which ones do you, do you know that you're, that you're in a a relationship where you tell each other basically reaffirming kinds of information. I ask myself, Tom, when was the last time you talked to somebody that made you uncomfortable? Tom, when was the last time you told people that you were wrong about something? When was the last time you apologized? By the way, these are questions that I wish I had known and push people at Morgan Stanley to ask themselves those questions. Because it's all about image, image, image. And again, that in quieter times at Morgan Stanley, folks felt like they had permission to have the essence conversations. And so I remember Peter Mueller. Peter Mueller is a character and a half, brilliant. And he'd come and we would talk and talk and talk. And I said, now you go back and do this with your traders. And he goes, I, I couldn't do this with my traders. So I tell my students here, one of your assignments is, is you got to find some people and find out what their fears are. I mean, you can ask them where they went to school, but ask them what their greatest fear is. Ask them what they're most proud of. But you, you can do it. You can do it playing ball. You can do it wherever. Men, are again, are a little bit more obsessed about about connecting through tasks, but small things. 
why don't I think this is, I mean, now I'm just, why don't I think this is as interesting as I want it to be? So here's, the, here's Tom right now, real time, doing this podcast. Inside my head, I'm saying, Oh well, you've got to you've got to be smarter than Steve, and you got to be you got to be a better teacher than Andre. That's an interesting story you're telling yourself, right? Yeah, it's an interesting story because because the reason I've studied these high need for for achievement personalities is because I am one, and I must say I'd recommend anybody listening to this to look up the research on Bob Keegan. And I think Bob Keegan at the School of Education here has done the best work on adult development. And he, I wish I had known his work when I was on Wall Street because he says there are certain adults that are stuck in what he calls an imperial phase. An imperial phase is, or imperial stage, is when you only form relationships based on whether you think you can get something out of them. And everything is instrumental. Everything is, is, well, this person could help me. I'm not going to sit over at that place with those people because they're not players. I'm going to want to sit here. And then he says, the second stage is a little better, but also problematic. And that is, is you get up in the morning and you say to yourself, you don't really say to yourself, what do I have to do today to convince a lot of people that I've really got my act together? And so you spend the whole day selling. And the, the problem with that is, is that you can convince 100 people and you may not convince two that think, I don't buy that or I don't think he's that good. And what we know is that you, we obsess over the two. We discount all the 100 and we discount the two because it goes back to this self-doubting. We start to ruminate and, and yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. And so this notion and then... I'm, you know, the secret, the answer is what Keegan would talk about is, is to get, try to get to the next stage, and by the way, which we call self-authored. And that is having the ability to stay intimate and detached simultaneously, to understand your patterns real time, to know when you're at fault and recognizing it and moving on. It's taking care of business real time and moving on and not storing up conversations, and not being so critical of other people. One of the things that we're, that we're seeing with our students, and it's this whole notion of insecurity, it's this whole notion of managing your image, is that you have to be certain and selling people on that particular construct. And what we're saying is, if you live a more curious life, you're going to listen more, you're going to be more interesting, you're going to learn a lot more, and you need to move your lives more from certainty to curiosity. And that would make a big leap. It strikes me that a lot of people don't make that move from certainty to curiosity because of the fear of failure. And I know, and we've talked about this, when I was here, I was very much in that image mind. You know, I didn't go to the right school, great job. Here I am at Harvard Business School, the pinnacle of education. And then you go, well, what now? And I remember Ted as a student. I remember being connected with Yale. And I want to say, is it Dave? Uh, who's the guy? Who's the money manager there? Dave Swenson. Dave Swenson. And I remember you either being connected with him or that you'd bring it up on occasion that you knew who he was. And I thought, I guess that is impressive. And then I would say, why does Ted need to t tell me that? And by the way... He's sitting right next to uh, Hank Paulson's son, right. <laughs> who's, who's telling me something else. Now, if I were more curious, 
then with Ted, I would have said, so what's that about? That's a curious question as opposed to me being certain that, well, Ted, see, Ted's insecure, just like all 900 other students here. Or me, or me saying, well, you know, I went to the White House and I did executive development for the White House staff. Somehow I'm going to work that into my conversation at 60, still at 66, so people think that I'm with it, that I'm, and to me, it's about managing still at 66, my own insecurities. I think so much about sort of as you grow through that and you learn the importance of listening and not talking and, and the difference between who you are and, and what you've done or, or what you're doing, there's still in the world, you're constantly trying to create an image. You're trying to grow in different ways. Do people get to a point in time where they just are comfortable with who they are? Or is there always this tension between hey, I'm trying to achieve something and therefore I need to present a certain type of an image? I think that the people that I've, I'm attracted to, and by the way, when I walked on a trading floor at Morgan Stanley, I said to myself, I've come home. I said, this felt like home, felt like family. However, what I do know is that I believe our need to cross things off our list is an addiction. I have a brother who his whole life has dealt with addictions. And he tells me, he says, Tom, your addiction to achieve is not much different than mine with drugs. There's not a whole lot of difference. And he says, so this is what I'm suggesting, is that I don't believe I'm ever going to get to the stage where I woke, where when I wake up in the morning and go, you know what, I just feel, I feel good about myself just because I'm Tom. I think every day... I'm going to have to manage the dilemma of achieving and feeling good about myself. In in some ways, I almost feel like they are irresolvable. But it's, it's the process of managing these tensions simultaneously. And that to me, that is a daily experience. This is not something, this is not a problem to be solved. So how did you decide when it was time to leave Morgan Stanley? I tried to capture it, I think, in one of these books, but I was sitting on a bench in Grand Central Station, and I didn't want to get on the train to go home, and I never wanted to go back to work. And I I knew it was time to go when I started to tell John Mack what he wanted to hear as opposed to what was in my heart, and I knew he needed to hear. And I think I wanted so much to impress him. And we had knockdown dragouts yelling at each other. I mean, it was a very, talk about intense relationship. Just lo- We loved each other, still do. But I started saying to myself, you know, I don't want to do any more battle. And so I'm just going to tell him things that I think he wants to hear. And that's when... I felt like I wasn't worth anything anymore. And so I haven't told that story, I think, anywhere. But I think that there's a lecture in it around when it's time to leave. Can you generalize that concept? It's generalizable in that are we observing our own behavior and to the point that we aren't living a life of self-deception? that we're living a life, again, that's just clear. And once I recognized 
that you could say I had sold out, whatever words you want to use, I realized that my value was falling off a cliff. And that's when I went to him the next day. I walked in. He said, you don't have to say a word. He says, you are a different person. You were the, the guy I met on the plane. And he says, you are so unhappy. And I said, you're right. And then, of course, I said I felt like I had disappointed him. But it was much more the disappointment in myself when, I gave, when in some ways I gave up. I gave the battle up, the battle up in Morgan Stanley of doing what I wanted to do. And is it that question of losing your authenticity that becomes the time to, to move on? Or is it a dissonance that you had with the direction of the organization? I know that I'm living a more fearful life when, when I ask myself questions internally. When I ask myself questions and most of the answers are no, then I know I'm living a fairly f- fearful life. And so when fearful I. Fearful being a good thing. Bad thing. Bad thing, okay. I want to be fearless. I want my kids, I want my students to be fearless, and they're not. I think my HBS students, unfortunately, are very confident, but not particularly courageous. And there's a huge difference. So I want to be courageous. But the courageous is answering, answering yes, sure. Not crazy stuff. But shall I tell John what I'm really thinking? Sure. When I find myself going, no, I don't think I will. No, I don't think. No, I don't think. When I'm answering that way, that's all out of fear. And I, that battle between courage and fear is just, it's just faces, faces all of us, I think, more than we'd like to own up to. So I want to turn a little bit to professional services organizations and a paper that you wrote probably a while ago now, but that I remember called Let's, something like Let's Hear It for the B Players. I have taken so much crap for that. <laughs> uh, and I think it's misunderstood. And I still... Well, what, why don't, why don't I, I, we start with the thesis of the paper and then tell me why you take so much crap for it. The crap I took for it is, is basically CEOs, managing partners, leaders in professional service firms. We've tracked them. They spend most of their time with people that are like them, with the stars. And I simply said, there's a lot of other people. And you could call them stalwarts or solid citizens. They get ignored. And I think it could be as much, if, if you're using the old GE curve, you know, to rank people and put them on the profile list. It might be 50 to 60% of your folks are solid, awesome people, but we don't focus on them. We just assume they're fine. And so people were taken aback that I would actually admit to say that we're not all stars. The other part is, is that what the data illustrated to me is there's another subgroup in organizations and I think less so in professional service firms. But these are a group of folks who live the values of a firm but who don't produce. Whether they went to the same school or whatever reason, we, just re- we don't want to lay them off or fire them because we've had this uh, long relationships with them. But what happens is that it makes other professionals furious. The so-called B players, and by the way, I think the B players may be more secure than anybody. Some of them are A players who have decided not to give their lives to their, their organizations, etc. But over time, what we want to do is we want to encourage and inspire the B players to raise their game a bit. But if they see folks who are hanging out, 
who have what we call a contractual relationship with the organ. A contractual relationship is one basically where you show up with your head, but your heart and soul are somewhere else. And what happens is there's a bunch of these folks in organizations where we don't know what to do with them, and they don't know what to do with themselves, so we kind of put them in a holding pattern and try to either shun them or or do some or pass them, give them an international, a global assignment. And so we don't want the B players over time. If you ignore them, then you're in free fall. And and we have the data to show organizations are are a disaster waiting to happen if you ignore what I would call the heart and soul of the organization. And are there organizations that you've worked with that? embraced it and did things to support and promote the B players and then saw the positive results of that? What these organizations have realized is that for many of them, they've, they've squeezed the rock on cost and they can't squeeze anymore. So now they're trying to figure out, oh, oh how do we get more productivity? So I'm doing much more what I would call leadership development. I do much more about calling people to uh, accountability at all levels and pushing training down. Again, my premise, though, is is that if you're not doing it in the top, then you can kiss a lineman goodbye. It's just happy talk. One of the things I really appreciated about Mac, and, and our mantra actually together was, is that as long as younger professionals pay for the sins of bad bosses, you are never going to be able to create the kind of organization you want to create. Okay, so let's peel that onion a little bit. As long as younger professionals are paying this in, so something goes wrong and it's the junior guy's fault, that's a huge problem. Or they make a mistake because you haven't been mentoring them. I'm very critical of the research and i think it's as it's it's the most lightweight research i've ever seen on these so-called millennials it makes it makes me crazy because i don't i know millions of millennials that will work 100 hour work weeks but what's interesting is is what the millennials want is the same thing that 60 year olds wanted and that is they wanted somebody to care about them and to recognize them and to pay attention to them and so this starts right at the very beginning. And it's, I think that the role of managing and being managers is more important now than it's ever been because they really are the glue. Why do you think it is that in certainly in the asset management industry, probably true of investment banking, you've had a long history of, let's just call it non-professional managers. They're producers. They're results-driven but there's never really been a pervasive culture of mentoring and developing in the way that you see almost as pervasively across other industries. So having sat there for a while, why do you think that's the case? Because I don't believe the leaders believe in it. They don't believe in it because they can't do it. And is it that, can they not do it because they were, ne- they were never trained to do it? I think that there's a psychological makeup a bit. I don't think that they ever believed that it was important for them to have necessarily honest conversations, that they could just do their work, they could be distracted, and if they were the smartest person in the room, then that's all that counts. I don't think that they wanted to push it. I think they wanted to basically keep their beliefs 
and uh, believe that people have joined uh, Wall Street because of the money. But I, I don't know a lot of my grad, a lot of the graduates here who are in, for example, asset management, or who are in private equity, who talk about having a rich and fulfilled life. There are some private equity firms, and I've known hundreds of partners, and all of them leave feeling hollow with truckloads of money, truckloads. And then what? And then that's the question, then what? I think some of them say, well, I think I, maybe I should teach, or maybe I should start a foundation, or maybe, but they haven't been in the practice of it. So they're 45, or they're whatever, they're 50, or, or younger, and they're not quite sure what to do with themselves. But I don't find folks and this is, a, I know it's a gross generalization, and all of you are going to turn off the podcast when I say it. But there isn't a feeling from the leaders in asset management groups to, to create a place where you deal with essence as opposed to image. You do your work, you keep your head down, you produce. That's the name of the game. And it's working for a number of them. And so let's say someone doesn't want that, right? They, they, want, they want to have a successful career and a fulfilling career at the same time in this space, in asset management. What are the first step that someone who's the head of a boutique organization would take with their team to say, you know what, we have Monday morning staff meeting. We're bringing in this guy, Tom DeLong. He's going to come talk to you. You give them their nice speech and people go, there's that soft, fuzzy professor guy. What should the leader do? I would be more concerned about uh, how he is as opposed to what he does. Go on with that. I'd like to see an asset manager person say, you know what, we've made a lot of money, and that's great. But what I haven't done is create the kind of organization that I'm really proud of. Or there might be loyalty to it. But if they invited me in, I would interview people before I got there. (laughs) And I try to get a sense if I'm being set up. If I want to know how serious this uh, person is that's leading it, I would want to spend a day and an evening with whoever the leader is, and I'm going to get a sense of whether I think they're authentic or not, or whether they're just playing a game. Yeah. I would say, when was the last time you disclosed anything about yourself to anyone on your senior team? When was the last time you talked about your fears and your insecurities with somebody uh, that you worked with? When was the last time you had an offsite where on your se- in your senior team you gave each other feedback about what they do great and what are two or three things they could do to, to uh, be better and how am I going to support you? I said, I think that the asset management world is f- 50 years from that. Talk a little bit about a big mistake you made in your career or your life. Oh, I'll, I see my divorce. Uh, here's a guy who studied organizations, studied relationships. People pay me money to go around and talk about it. I don't see it as a mistake, but I see it as a failure. <laughs> and I know it was the right thing to do, but it still causes me pain. And I find myself having conversations with myself when I meet with meet people about whether I'll bring it up or not, or whether, you know, or, or am I going to do the image approach? I think that I was so addicted that part of that breakup was based on my 
selfishness and not seeing that other people had big goals as well. In fact, one of the questions that, that uh, I now ask myself, and I don't think I ever did in my first marriage, is I don't ever remember getting up in the morning and saying, so what am I going to do today to honor the dreams of my partner? Or, or for that matter, coming to HBS, what am I going to do today to honor the dreams of younger faculty who need to be mentored? It's more, it's back to Keegan's work. It's what do I need to do today so at the end of the day I feel good about who I am. And again, that's based on getting stuff done and crossing it off our list. So that's a mistake. Another mistake is I wish I would have helped my brother earlier uh, with his challenges. And it's easy, to, it's easy to just discount siblings that are struggling. It's not, I'm sounding too callous. It's easy to be distracted. And busy, just and keep busy. I'm real busy. And um, so I think that was a mistake. Boy, I, could, I have a few. <laughs> what are you most proud of? Oh, well, I'm most proud of the five daughters that I've been blessed with and the older three, how they're contributing to society and their perspective. And I always made it a goal as a parent. I thought I was a really good parent and a good father. I always said, what am I going to do so that they are psychologically, spiritually more healthy than I am? And I think I've achieved that. And I, by the way, I feel like the trend is up based on where my parents came from. I'm proud that I, that I think I live a more curious life now. I think I have more question, questions than I've ever had. I'm embarrassed how sure I was of this world. I had all the answers at 26. I mean, I had this thing nailed. I had it <laughs> nailed. I had it nailed, and I'm just embarrassed to think about how clear I was about how the world worked, how everybody else worked, and how... I was going to kind of control the world. All right. Well, I have a few closing questions to ask you, a little bit more on the fun side. What is your favorite thing to do that is a complete waste of time? Being on my Harley. I, again, oh, I, yeah, the I, Harley. I, yeah, I haven't talked much about it. I sold it when, with these two new little children, but I've toyed with, with the idea, and everyone says I'm crazy to do that, to have a Harley here in Boston, and I can see their point. What else do I do that's totally worthless? I love watching some real inane television, like like The Deadliest Catch. <laughs> I think it's out of this world. Or they used to have one about truckers going over frozen ice up into the Arctic or looking for gold just to watch the, di- the dynamics of these families. So that's a total waste. It's just a, I'm totally blank. And when my wife talks to me when I'm watching it, I can't hear a thing she says. What was your favorite sports moment, either as a fan or participant? In 1977, the Portland Trailblazers, or 1976, one of those years they won, Bill Walton was this long-haired center, and the 76ers were up two games to none in the finals for the NBA championship. And for some reason, my dad got tickets, and I flew from Purdue back there. And I was there when um, Maurice Lucas hit Darryl, 
uh, punch Daryl Dawkins. And I thought that that wasn't the highlight. The highlight was <laughs> the highlight was that the Blazers won this thing, playing Golden State ball. In fact, I'll say that the Golden State Warriors are playing the Portland Trailblazer ball when Lionel Hollins and Dave Twardzik were guards, and that was a great, great moment. 1977. So no three point line. Don't get then. me started on the and, and Tom, line. I know when you were watching, they still had the basket underneath the hoop that That's Naismith right. had they to did. climb up and they did. Right. They did, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, it was a, it, actually another one was uh, when the Red Sox won in night. Yeah, we, we don't, we don't yeah, talk about are, that on these podcasts. I understand. We just don't. We I just, that's I off limits. We already went there with yeah. Galbraith. It was terrible. All right. What phrase did your mother or father repeat to you over and over again that most stuck with you? Say your prayers. Huh? Good enough. Yeah, and I think uh, say your prayers. And I think that on so many levels, it's basically a message of slowing down. Yeah. Did you, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend? We talked about some in the conversation. Yes, I think one is, is, was written by David Halberstam called The Children. And it was written years ago, but it's, it's the story of seven kids who ended up going down. And one of those kids was John Lewis, who's now, now a congressman. But these were the, these were the freedom fighters. And they were, they were 20 and 21, and they went to Fisk University to get training from Martin Luther King. And that's basically the first notion of leadership development. And then the second book I would recommend is Bruce Springsteen's autobiography. You won't put it down. What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? That that listening is harder than I ever thought it was. And the more I listen and the less I talk, <laughs> except for the podcast, uh, the more I learn. And I also have been an apologist for, for being a person known to be kind and I've been embarrassed by that. And the older I get, the more I realize how hard it is to be kind. And I don't mean nice. I mean kind in the most fundamental way. Uh, and I wish I would have, I wish I'd been kinder from a, as a 21-year-old. All right, last one. It is your waning days. You are 96 years old. Sitting on your Harley instead of a rocking chair. What advice would you give yourself today? Oh, it would be to love yourself. Love yourself. That's not going to work with asset management groups, but it's to be just to be accepting. Accept yourself. And, and you're more than enough. You're more than enough. Tom, this is so much fun. Thank you for the time, for the conversation. Thank you, Ted. It's good to see you again. And uh, come back and visit. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time. Mm-hmm.